Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. My guest today is constitutional law professor Kimberly Whaley. Professor Whaley is author of one of my favorite books, How to Read the Constitution and Why. This book actually has the text of the Constitution in it, and most people would be surprised to know that this is a very short document. Professor Whaley is also a great follow on Instagram. I learn a lot from your posts, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Ann. Well, there's been a, a lot happening in the news lately. Um, president Trump has taught us a lot about, former President Trump has taught us a lot about uh, constitutional law. Um, my first question to you is, got a couple different elements to it, but um, so basically former President Trump, this regarding his second impeachment, what was he charged with? Does the Senate have jurisdiction over this trial now that he is out of office? And how likely is it that he will be convicted? Well, so the charge is incitement of insurrection, uh, basically claiming two real violations of the Constitution. It's actually, it's one charge, but the charge goes on for a couple of pages. One is there's an express provision in the 14th amendment to the constitution that bans insurrection. So they claim that he, by encouraging what happened, the carnage, frankly, that happened on January 6th, he violated that. And then there's also uh, the take care clause of article two that requires mandates that the president take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And so by encouraging uh, sort of an upset of the peaceful transfer of power and counting of the Electoral College vote certifications on January 6th, the president allegedly violated that um, that particular provision. You know, I, I also think there could be some questions around his failure to take care that the laws are faithfully executed by calling out troops on that day. I mean, I live right outside Washington, D.C. I've spent, you know, a lot of time on the mall and around the Capitol uh, and sitting watching for hours where there was no law enforcement presence. That was just really bizarre. Uh, that that was a stunning kind of lapse or failure to enforce the laws. Um, so so that's number one. The second is, is it constitutional? Now, we saw Rand Paul, re Republican senator from Kentucky, move to dismiss the article of impeachment. And just so our listeners know, an article of impeachment is basically like an indictment. It's a charge. It, that's all it is. It's a claim um, that this that the president violated, you know, or committed high crimes and misdemeanors in connection with January 5th. And so what Rand Paul did was essentially seek to dismiss the, the charge, just like a criminal defendant could move a court to dismiss an indictment. And um, that motion was defeated, but his rationale was 
that now that the president is no longer a sitting president, that the trial can't happen. I did a piece um, and you mentioned my Instagram feed. I, I tweet in my Instagrams at Kim Whaley, W-E-H-L-E. But I did a piece in Politico uh, last week that kind of makes the argument that just as a matter of logic, that can't be right. Um, first of all, there's also there's some historical precedent for impeachments after I think it was the Secretary of War left office and was impeached, was convicted at the trial at a trial or not convicted. I think there was a trial held. So there's historical precedent for that. Number one. Number two is if you recall the first impeachment with of Donald Trump, the Republicans made the argument that, listen, we need an election. This is unfair to the American public to remove a president when we're just months from an election, let the election happen. The election happened. He tried to upend the election. And now the argument was, well, he was unsuccessful. And so you can't impeach him or remove him or convict him, I should say, after he leaves office. So it's like heads we win, tails you lose. If you if you can't impeach a president prior to an election and you can't impeach or remove a president, convict a president after an election, the impeachment clause becomes irrelevant. And under that theory, the only way there could be a trial is if he actually succeeded in uh, in upending the election and thwarting the will of the people to put Biden in office. And that also seems bizarre that the framers would have only allowed accountability if President Trump essentially succeeded in a coup. I mean, none of that just makes logical sense. So I, I think that's a loser, that argument. And basically, you know, this the Congress defeated the motion. And so I think that's, that is this, that is sort of the ruling on that effectively, that, that it's not a good argument. I do think that's going to be a major argument we hear at trial though. It'll be because on the facts, it's really so far, we haven't heard a response from team Trump on the allegations themselves. No one's denying that he did what he did. I think some people are saying it's a first amendment, um, protected speech on behalf of the president. Um, I can say a lot about that. Uh, there's all kinds of speech, including inciting an insurrection that is regulated. So not all speech is protected under the Constitution. But to your last question, no, I think there's 17, you know, there's 17 Senate uh, Republicans that would need to vote to convict. And I don't see the energy there in, in this moment. Um, I just don't see that happening. And Joe Biden, President Biden signaled that that's his expectation as well. Okay. Well, let's break it down um, issue by issue. So with respect to incitement, in your legal opinion, do you think that um, President Trump's speech, which led to the rioting and, and infiltrating the Capitol, do you think that qualifies as incitement? Well, I mean, the, the, the standard for incitement is high for a reason. It has to, under a Supreme Court case known as Brandenburg, under the First Amendment, it has to um, produce you know, an imminent threat of violence. And we're now hearing from people that were at the Capitol that they did it in response to Donald Trump. So, you know, I think there's a very strong case there. Um, this isn't a criminal trial. Uh, and the big distinction for listeners is that, you know, Im impeachment and conviction can't put anybody in jail. Um, it's really about a pink slip. It's about, it's about accountability for your job. Uh, just like you and I have jobs uh, and we can lose our jobs for many reasons. That's a way for a president to lose their job. They're not going to lose liberty, um, for example, which would be the situation for a criminal defendant. So I'm not so sure the standard of proof would be as high as if this were a criminal charge against an individual for incitement of insurrection. Uh, you know, other former prosecutors have said that this is a, 
you know, an easy case to make. I had Ali Honig, CNN legal analyst on my Instagram show, Simple Politics. And, you know, he thought it if he were prosecuting this, it would take him a day. Uh, that's not a complicated, difficult prosecution, unlike maybe what we saw the first, the first um, impeachment where it was just trickier whether the conversation with former or with President um, Zelensky from Ukraine, whether that was actually asking for something, uh, a quid pro quo or, or something illegal. There was a lot of debate around the facts there. I think we all saw what happened on January 6th. I mean, and, and the Senate, the, the senators who are now the jurors, they were there. They, they literally experienced, they have firsthand knowledge of what happened. So would the um, same incitement standard in the Brandenburg versus Ohio case, the case that was decided in 1969, would that standard apply to this impeachment trial? Well, again, you know, this is not a court of law. We don't have a Supreme Court or even a federal court deciding all of this. So it applies to the extent to which, you know, the, the members of the Senate decide, or in this moment, it looks like it's going to be Patrick Leahy, who instead of Chief Justice Roberts is going to preside. I have things to say about that too. I did a piece in the bulwark on that. Uh, I mean, a, a few things about the first amendment, um, just so people understand. And I think some people understand this from seeing the debate around you know, take a knee controversy with um, Colin Kaepernick, et cetera. The first amendment is about confining government's government power. So the notion is, you know, I, regular citizen, should be able to speak without the government doing something to limit my speech. Because, you know, if the government makes an arrest, it's an arrest. If I were to make an arrest, that would be kidnapping. Um, if the government puts someone on death row and executes them, that's a legal execution. If I did that, that would be murder and I would go to jail. It's really different the amount of power government has that then regular people, which is why the First Amendment's there to limit government power. So the fact that we're talking about Donald Trump as president's First Amendment rights, right? He had, at that moment, the, the power of the entire federal military. He had the authority of over all federal law enforcement, and that's multiple agencies, a couple dozen eight entities um, that patrol Washington, D.C. itself. You're talking the Federal Marshal Service, eight, um, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. You're talking, um, you know, uh, Bureau of Prisons. We saw some of those officers deputized over the summer when there was the protests around Black Lives Matter in Lafayette Park. And we saw the kind of violence that was initiated at the president's behest through Attorney General um, Bill Barr. So I, I think it's a, it's a misfit. It's a mismatch. This, he doesn't, he, he wasn't in a position to have his First Amendment rights limited because he had more power over the uh, ability to execute the law than anyone else on the planet. So I, I do think, Ian, that's a bit of a misfit. That being said, I'm sure Brandenburg will come up and, you know, I, I would be perfectly comfortable with the decision that that would be the standard even for the president. And as we talked about earlier, there's plenty of evidence that even under that standard, there's a strong case to be made that the president's speech uh, in which he said, you know, something along the lines of you can't, you have to be strong, you, you know, you can't just, just cave 
um, around this fraudulent, allegedly fraudulent election um, incited that violence. I mean, two things to keep in mind on January 6th, and this is this is important um, out of, you know, I think honestly, some understanding of the people that rioted. Um, one is there they really believed, based on the president's lies, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump and given to, to, to Joe Biden fraudulently. That was a lie and that was perpetrated by the president. Without that lie, they would not have shown up on January 6th. They really believed that there was somehow some legal violation. And a lot of them are anecdotally saying they're just not going to vote anymore, which is, I think, a tragedy for American democracy. Number yeah. two, number two, they really believe that that Vice President Pence could hand the election on January 6th to Donald Trump, which is also, that's a legal falsehood. Um, so without the lies, Ian, we wouldn't have seen five deaths. And then we, I think we have two, at least two other officers that have taken their lives in the wake of January 6th. So I think the death toll is probably more like seven. Yeah. Um, very sad. January 6th was a very sad day for our country. Um, getting back to the incitement standard that was defined in the Brandenburg case, that basically said that the government can punish speech that is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. And in that case, I think there it involved a KKK member who said some very horrible things um, talked about getting revenge and planning marches, but the court actually um, ruled in the KKK's favor. They said it was abstract and it was not imminent. Is that correct? Is that a fair overview of that case? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay, so it's a, it is a very tough standard, but um, I think if I understand your position, you think there's a case to be made. Yes, but you know it's important to distinguish between a criminal trial where there's a neutral jury that makes that determination and a political trial in the Senate. I think, I don't think the evidence is going to determine what happens to Donald Trump on February 9th and following that. But, but yes, there's absolutely a case to be made. And I think that we know that from the articles of impeach, the article of impeachment, making that charge and 10 Republicans joining in, in voting for that impeachment charge. I mean, Think about this. I mean, I just want people to step back and use their logical minds. Um, you know, the reason we have rules uh, uh, is to confine behavior. But if rules aren't enforced, they become irrelevant. So what's important in this moment is to ask yourself, is this behavior you are comfortable with happening again? Is this okay? Are we going to have a situation where every four years, whoever's in office, maybe it's Joe Biden in four years, can incite a riot um, threaten murdering the United States Congress um, in the Capitol in order to wrestle power from the legitimate successor. If there's no consequences for what happened on January 6th and, the, and you know, former President Trump's role in that, we the people are saying that's okay with us. That's okay for us. It's like a speed limit that no one gets a ticket for. People will speed. That's, the, in my mind, the apolitical thing that's on the table right now. Um, it, we are sanctioned. It's what's good for Donald Trump is going to be good for whoever, for whomever. And that's unfortunately, um, that's, that's really is a political judgment. And the, the United States Congress takes an oath to uphold and defend the constitution. And I think people like Liz Cheney, 
who are stepping outside of, you know, sort of lockstep support of Donald Trump to do what's right for the Constitution should be and should be supported. Um, but there's so much misinformation, Ian, around these basics. People don't understand what's at stake. And that's just sad. Yeah. And I hear this a lot like, oh, the country needs to move forward. We got to do what's best for the country. And I think about President Ford and how he screwed up by pardoning Nixon, you know, be, under that same logic, you know, no one should be above the law, right? That's the whole point of a democracy and a constitution. And the framers were worried about a dictatorship and, and that's why they gave the president limited powers. Uh, oh, absolutely. And Congress was to be the most powerful branch. They were very worried about Congress having too much power. But if you read article one, you know, it lists a lot of powers of the United States Congress, many of which, like the power to declare war, Congress has basically given up over the years. Um, and the belt and suspenders of the presidency has just enlarged, enlarged, enlarged. And that's before Donald Trump. I mean, one thing, I mean, we can talk constitutional theory, and I, I think lay people hear about originalism and all this notion, but I think no one can debate this, this, this core fact. The framers and the revolutionaries didn't want an unlimited monarchy. They, they fought and died to reject that. So if we're getting close to arguing for unlimited power in one man, that under any theory of the constitution has to be wrong because that is exactly what they were rejecting in King George. And, and that's the debate we're having, frankly. We're having a debate without naming it. That is the Democrats, frankly, their view is let's go to you know stick with government by we the people the Republican mainstream in this moment is no, you know, we want, we, the Republicans and we handpick or we, it's our successor that stays in office and we stay in power. That's not a democracy. That's something else. Um, it looks more like some kind of authoritarianism, but let's have that debate. Let's talk about whether we want to chuck democracy and go to something where we just follow entrenched leadership. Um, I think that if we framed it that way, it would be a very different discussion in America. Um, but Americans are being duped into thinking that, you know, devotion to a party is somehow democracy at, at any cost. Uh, and that, that just isn't the case. And it's our children and grandchildren that, that will suffer if democracy fails. And it could fail. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a pretty young democracy, America. Um, and it's, it's not our birthright. It's not set in stone. If we don't protect it, it'll go. Good point. Um, the second issue I'm just totally fascinated with because I'm a total history nerd, um, and that's the jurisdictional issue, whether or not, you know, the Senate has jurisdiction over this trial now that uh, uh, President Trump is out of office. And you mentioned the Secretary of War. His name was William Belknap, and this he was impeached in 1876 for alleged kickbacks and bribes. He apparently lived a lavish lifestyle at the taxpayer's expense. And he was impeached by the House, but before the Senate held the trial, he had resigned. And unbelievably, the Senate actually acquitted him because um, you have to have a two-thirds vote. And many of the senators argued that they didn't have jurisdiction. And then there was a, another case, which is a little bit different, um, the William Blunt case, he actually signed the Constitution. He was a senator from Tennessee. Um, he came from a wealthy family and owned a lot of land. He conspired with Great Britain um, on a land deal to try to increase his fortune. He got caught by President Adams, 
who actually read some damning evidence on the floor of Congress. And he was expelled, but not impeached, because I guess senators cannot be impeached. So if you're looking at just the, the, these two cases we have in terms of precedent, you could you can make an argument that the Senate doesn't have jurisdiction. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the Belknap case is precedent to the to uh, to the contrary, right? Because even if even though he was acquitted, he the impeachment or the the trial actually um, went forward. So that is an example of a trial after someone is no longer holding federal office but was impeached during their time in office. Um, you know, there, the impe- impeachment is uh, is raised six times in the Constitution. Nowhere does it res- resolve this one way or the other. So. So, okay, what do you do when, when it's unclear? Um, normally, those kinds of ambiguities go to the federal judiciary and ultimately, ultimately to the United States Supreme Court. Um, that's not going to happen here. There's not going to be a case um, where there would be uh, jurisdiction for a court to decide whether what's happening on February 9th is constitutional. Um, the only way it could get to a federal court would be if Donald Trump were convicted and say banned from future federal office, which is what the constitution expressly authorizes. And then he were to challenge that ban in court and that make it up to the Supreme Court. No one, you can't just go to the court and ask for their view on the constitution. And even if that were to get to the court, there's something called the political action doctrine where the court could say, listen, this is too political. And that was, that'd probably be right in that moment. I mean, really at this point, who gets to decide how to read that is probably the U.S. Senate. And that that piece of history demonstrates, at least historically, the U.S. Senate. And here this round, the United States um, Congress has decided that that it is constitutional to go forward with a trial um, after so long as someone's been impeached in office. I think it would be different if once someone left, uh, it were used as political retribution and the person were no longer was no longer even in office because then there's no mechanism that's being served by that. I mean, again, it's tickets for speeding. It's, it's, it's basically, you know, a personnel um, sort of action against someone who is acting on behalf of the the taxpayer, the public, and there should be consequences for abusing office. Um, I think the argument that, you know, we, maybe this is the, this is kind of the, the argument um, on behalf of those who went forward with a trial of this of Secretary of War Belknap, is that if there weren't uh, it weren't possible to actually hold the trial after someone left office, then you could just bypass completely the Senate trial process. Once someone was impeached, they could just resign, and then there'd be no consequences. Other, I mean, there'd be the resignation, but there couldn't there wouldn't ever be a trial because you could outmaneuver it by resigning prior to that step. And, you know, I think the argument is, and I make this um, argument in the political piece, if this were a court, one argument would be, well, it's moot. Now he's no longer president. You can't remove him. But the constitution does give, as I indicated earlier, a different remedy. He can be banned from holding public office. That makes it not moot in terms of a mechanism of accountability and for issuing tickets for speeding for potential abuses of office in the White House. So, so you know, to say it's blatantly unconstitutional in theory is, is a non-question because, because it's not in the Constitution one way or the other. So then you just have to noodle your way through the logic of it and, you know, what the, the Congress, how the Congress is functioning. And I think in this, 
you know, I think it's important. I, I just think it's really important to have consequences. I mean, remember, Ian, too, there's an uh, the Department of Justice won't indict a sitting president. So if a sitting president can't be indicted and you can't you can't impeach and remove and and have a, a trial while they're in office because of the, an election's coming. That was the position of the first impeachment. But then once they lose office, you can't have a trial because the election's over. Then right. that's unlimited power in the White House. And that's a monarchy. And that's certainly not what the framers wanted. Fascinating. Um, in doing the research for this episode, the the distinction between Belknap and Blunt, Belknap actually, he fled to Europe. He was like disgraced and he was crying when he resigned. Blunt actually returned to Tennessee after getting impeached and served um, as a, in the state legislature there. He had like a very successful career after that, uh, after getting expelled. <laughs> I guess Tennessee is very forgiving. <laughs> Well, I love the little historical details. It kind of puts, um, you know, it does two things. One is it it, it humanizes these processes. And second, it it just shows that, you know, democracy has been messy from day one. Um, It's messy. (laughs) And, and, uh, and history shows that out uh, born, you know, that, that, I mean, many people believe that, or I should say many, some people believe that we didn't even really have a functioning democracy until the 1960s. And, uh, the civil rights legislation that actually, you know, enforced or made possible um, the post-Civil War amendments that allowed people of color to vote. Um, that that is that if you if you if you date it from the '60s, I mean, our democracy is really just in diapers, uh, and so it's very easy to see how it could it could fail, and it, it has been failing. I'll just be honest; it, it's been failing. Yeah. You know, on the other hand, though, when you look around the world, I mean, the Constitution, it's not perfect. It's the best we got. And uh, it's been keeping us together. I always think of that quote from Thomas Hobbes. um, The state of nature is nasty, brutish and short. Yes. Um, So, you know, you're right. We do take it for granted, but people need to realize what the alternative is. I mean, if you look at other countries in terms of the freedoms we have here, the First Amendment, the freedom of movement, um, you know, we are very fortunate. And so, um, but you're right, we need to work hard. Uh, I think Ronald Reagan said uh, freedom is one generation away or something like that. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, you make a great point. I mean, living in Washington, we have people from all over the world. And, you know, chatting up people from other parts of the world who come from different you know, different political regimes that are either not democracies, it's more, you know, authoritarianism or they're fake democracies. Um, that is, you know, the elections really are fraudulent. And um, if you want any measure of justice, if you want a police officer to show up at your ho- home to do something, you've got to pay them. Uh, that they're, that it's really kind of the wild west, um, even when it comes to speeding. Um, you know, you people are driving up on sidewalks and they're blowing through stop signs because no one's around to enforce that stuff. And these, these people from other parts of the world, they're just like, I don't understand Americans. I mean, wow. Like, like they, they're just really aghast at sort of how blase many of us are to your point um, on, on the, the absolute, absolute precious gift of democracy. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people just misunderstand it. You know, they think, they think their right is to, is to do it their way. <laughs> and that's their right. This is the, the sort of, the anti-mask people and the anti-vaccine people. Um, you know, the Supreme Court always is, when it comes to the Constitution, is balancing two things. We have our individual rights, but we also have a broader public good. 
That's why, for example, you have a First Amendment right to free speech, but you can't scream fire in a crowded theater because it leads to a stampede um, that you could get arrested for that. So that is infringing on your speech. You're, maybe you really believe and you, in your heart of hearts, you want to have your First Amendment rights and say fire in a crowded theater to get attention to maybe some animal rights issue or something that matters to you. You want to get in the newspaper. That's your First Amendment rights. You could be put in jail. Why? Because we balance our rights against the broader public interest. And that's bad for society, right? Um, and I think that's the piece people don't seem to understand. It's not an all or nothing proposition. It's a compromise um, all the time. And you know, we give up a little bit for something bigger, which is a, an accountable government, a government that we are the bosses. They're not bosses of us. We're the bosses of them through the ballot box. And that itself has become corroded by claiming that you know the nearly eight million uh, vote win of of Joe Biden was theoretically abstractly a steal without any evidence whatsoever. Um, you know, sixty lawsuits and ninety different judges all threw them out because judges are bound by evidence, as you know. Judges are bound by rules; they can't just go with politics. And when 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 you know uh, push came to shove, there was no evidence, and I think that's all you need to know. To um, I mean, if there was, the Republicans and D Donald Trump would have put it before court. It just wasn't there. So we need to move on uh, from that lie. But unfortunately, it's caught hold. One thing that's becoming a, a popular topic out here in California is, um, you know, the, the issues surrounding the vaccinations. Uh, unfortunately, I think it was yesterday or the day before some anti-vaxxers um, protested around Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles and the fire department actually had to halt things for an hour. Um, I want to ask you about this Jacobson versus Massachusetts case. Right. It's an old case. I think it's from 1905 and it had to do with um, this guy, Mr. Jacobson, who I think was from Northern Europe. He had a bad reaction to some vaccines there, came over to the United States. This was during smallpox. And um, he refused to get vaccinated. And I think they fined him about $5. Um, and so there's some talk out here. People are worried about forced vaccination laws. Do you think that this Jacobson case gives the government the power to forcibly vaccinate people with respect to COVID-19? Well, I'm not so sure what the word forcibly means. I mean, can they go in your house and pin you down and stick a needle in your arm? No. Um, uh, but, um, essentially, you know, th there could be penalties for not complying with a vaccine law. Jacobson, I can't remember which justice, one of the conservatives that might've been, um, Neil Gorsuch, but, but I think there, there are some on the court that think Jacobson, or actually, I think it was Justice Alito actually in his speech to the Federal Society who believe that that's, that's shaky authority, but it is the best authority we have. And that was again, where the court to your point, made the argument that I made earlier, which is that uh, in that instance, could could basically Massachusetts, when you say force, impose some kind of penalty for not complying with vaccination laws. And the court said yes. And I think uh, Mr. Jacobson raised his, his due process rights, other kind of individual rights under the Constitution. And the court said, you know, science is showing that this is a good thing for the public at large. So sometimes you know, your individual rights do do kind of have to um, to yield. Now think about seatbelt laws. I mean, I'm a law professor. I teach a 
a course called Administrative Law about agency uh, powers to regulate. And when Ronald Reagan came in, one of his um, he was anti-government, deregulation, smaller government, and the Department of Transportation had a had just passed a rule mandating um, seat belts in new cars. And Ronald Reagan came in and said, you know, that's he campaigned in part on this notion that forcing someone to strap themselves in their car, and these are my words, not his, is is overbearing government. And now we all do it, right? I mean, you could say, listen, I, I should be able to move around my car at leisure. But we are all, quote, forced to, to buckle our seatbelts when we get in a car or we could get a ticket um, or, you know, say we get in an accident and someone's injured. We could have criminal liability potentially, which would limit our, limit our ability to move around. So there's nothing unique about this vaccine. Um, and if you want to put your kids in public school, you have to have a certain vaccination record. We have a history of sort of mandating in some way or another certain kinds of behaviors in the interest of the public good. Uh, and so to answer your question, it's a nuanced one. It's a balancing one. But based on Jacobson, there is authority, and I think it's legitimate authority, for the notion that government can impose restrictions on people's, quote, rights, unquote, um, for the interests of the broader populace. Now, of course, that can get abused. Um, but the idea that somehow you have a right to, to, you know, walk around, say, the masking, infecting other people with impunity. Um, no, nobody has that right. You know, you don't have a right um, to to walk around with and sprinkle some kind of toxin on people. People would call that, you know, a a crime. Um, you could say that's my right. I mean, this is this is a this is a a misunderstanding of the balancing between reasonable limits on people's activity and individual rights. Your individual rights are not absolute. They're not anywhere except maybe the 13th Amendment, which bans slavery. Uh, and some people would say even that is violated in certain aspects of our culture. For example, mass incarceration of people of color. Yeah. Um, the Jacobson case probably does need to be revisited because I think that was decided before the the standards, like the strict scrutiny standard, interme intermediate scrutiny standard, and the rational basis standard, right? Yeah, well, I mean, thanks for raising those because, you know, when people talk about strict constructionist uh, reading of the Constitution and uh, we want conservative judges because they're only going to apply the plain language, I mean, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court over many decades has come up with this three-tiered system. It's basically what grading rubric applies to, depends on the kind of right in, in question. Um, and they have these levels of scrutiny. None of it's in the constitution, none of it. It's all made up by, by the court um, to create a manageable standard. And sure, it needs to be updated. That is just the most recent one we have. And it's conceivable um, that the court could, this court could massively you know, alter the Jacobson standard, but that is, that's the prevailing law right now. So that is what the states have to, to guide how they move forward, not some speculative sense of how the court might change it, right? As you know, um, whatever's the most recent law, that's the one that applies unless it's changed. And Jacobson certainly stands for the proposition at the a constitutional level that there is authority for, for states to, to impose some measure of uh, accountability for not engaging in a massive vaccination program. Yeah, I'd like to see an updated case because back then things were a lot different and smallpox I think killed one in three people. 
the infrastructure was different. Um, so you can kind of understand the court's logic there. Um, you know, now with COVID, I think, you know, especially if you're under 60, it's probably under 1%. We have a better infrastructure. So probably should be, we should get an update on with that particular case. Well, I mean, it, it would require someone um, who refused to comply with the vaccination program, which as far as I know, there, it, there aren't even enough vaccines for people who want right. them in this moment. So, so it's kind Not of a non-issue right now, right? And I think, you know, I would say those who, who, who prevented people who want vaccines from getting vaccines, that's an infringement on someone's individual liberty, right? I mean, that we're not talking about a mandatory vaccination program yet. We're talking about people wanting to have an authorized uh, medication and someone else stopping that. I mean, I have a real problem with that. I mean, to do that in, in, the, in the name of individual rights, um, when we have elderly people and we do have 440,000 people dead, um, you know, uh, one in a, a thousand Americans um, dead from this virus. That's a that's a huge number. Um, so maybe it's not smallpox numbers, but this is this is serious stuff. It's also ground our education system to a halt. Uh, you know, our kids are are going to be behind other generations. Um, they're not getting the social uh, sort of development that kids at their level need in terms of their ability to you know learn how to be around their friends and. Uh, and develop that way, even if they're homeschooling, plus they're, they're locked on screens for eight hours a day. Who knows what kind of downside that has to their brain development, in addition to just, you know, stores closing, restaurants, I mean, all of these things. Um, there's a, 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 an argument that, that moving beyond COVID is, is really, really important. And if the a vaccine program facilitates that, there's just no way a legitimate um, competent government official can just ignore that and ignore that as a possibility. I mean, that would be in my mind, not being, not being a sort of a dutiful public servant to at least not put that on the table as important for these, all of these other issues that are harming Americans. Um, you know, poverty is, has gone up, um, you know, one in seven family kids are, uh, families are hungry in America right now. I mean, th these are all really serious issues that if we can move beyond COVID could be addressed. So I just don't, you know, as you know, probably at this point, Ian, one of the things that I really push back on is black and white thinking. Um, you know, any hard problem you have in your life, do I take the job? You know, do I get the elective surgery? Um, do I get a divorce? Do I, you know, tolerate this abusive person at work? Those are, they're never black and white. There's all kinds of, you, you talk to your friends, you talk to advisors, maybe you talk to a professional, you mull it over, you wring your hands, you, you know, you make a choice and maybe you second guess it. The hard problems are gray. They're not black and white. And something like what to do about a massive, unprecedented pandemic, that's not an easy answer. There's no easy answers to that. Well said. Well, one thing I, I will miss about President Trump is I learned a lot about the Constitution, just... Uh, you know, dealing with with, with uh, some of the things he did. For example, I didn't know that a senator um, couldn't be impeached. That was fascinating. Yeah, to me. right. It's just um, well, I mean, but I think people also don't. They think it's just the president, but it can be any officer. Um, so it would be members of the cabinet, the vice president, people within the executive branch and the judicial branch are impeachable. But yes, not members of the United States Congress. But they can be. They can be thrown out. As we're seeing now, the conversation um, happening around House Member Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has been, you know, spewing some pretty 
pretty scary, crazy things. Even Mitch McConnell came out and said it was loony, I think. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't represent the Republican Party. Well, I really appreciate your time and expertise. And it's always fascinating talking with you, Professor Whaley. Thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you for having me, Ian. I enjoyed it. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.